Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hey, thanks for tuning in and welcome to our destination podcast. This time we're highlighting Sri Lanka. Uh, it's an island country in South Asia, southwest of the Bay of Bengal, and it's also one of the world's largest producers of tea. Yum. Now, tea gets a mention in this episode, but our friend Felix prefers to grab a coconut than a cuppa as he lives and works in the hills of Sri Lanka. Um, Phil, you catch up with a guy who runs a volunteer and travel abroad company. You met him at a conference in Edinburgh. Uh, It includes Sri Lanka among its destinations. We speak to James, who is the official Guinness World Record holder as the youngest person to visit all 196 sovereign nations in the world. Good work. Yep, plus much more. But let's get your quiz question to get things underway. Okie dokie. Sri Lanka has been an important trading destination for centuries driven for by the demand for what native plant? And hint, it's not tea. Answers at the end of the show. Felix Weber, he lives in Sri Lanka where he promotes sport for development, peace and social cohesion. Now, basically he promotes the non-competitive side of sports, which is something you can't associate with, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) If you play, you play to win. Now, we previously featured Felix as an amazing nomad, focusing on his running, which he does as a way to experience the world and totally inspired by an absolute love of people. Yeah, look, and he lives in a very strange way. Well, you know, I admire the way he lives. It's It's a very basic way. Of living, he's got a room with a toilet and a shower, but otherwise no facilities. In fact, he actually camps inside his room and prefers to sleep on the floor. But that gives him protection from the mozzies, and he says it's where he sleeps the best. Um, that's actually true for the last six months. So I moved now from the mountains to the east coast um, to a place called Particular, where it's almost. Every day, very sunny and hot, but last night it just poured down and rain and my room got completely flooded and everything actually. But luckily, I actually pitched my my tent outside at the sports ground, so I only found the, uh, the latest flooding in my room this morning and had a peaceful night out out on the sports ground. It wouldn't have ruined much because you also revealed that you're a minimalist. You travel with whatever you can fit into your backpack. Yeah, that's true. So basically, like oh, 80% of the times when I'm moving around, I have everything I need with me. So I have a small tent, a sleeping mat. Um, here in Sri Lanka, I don't really need a sleeping bag. So I just have a thin um, inliner or a sheet. And then basically just food and water and my running shoes. That's basically all I carry with me. When you go to a new place in Sri Lanka, what do people make of you? Do you think you're? Do they think you're a bit of a nut? Oh, he, last last podcast <laughs> you called him a hobo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they're not really used to, especially foreigners, just running through villages or running through the um, tea plantations or the rice fields and. So they're just interested and it's been a wonderful journey for the last um, four four or five months where I've been living here and also last year I was here for three months and just been fantastic all the time. We know that you love people and it's one of the things that inspires you to travel but tell us about the beauty of Sri Lanka. And I think Sri Lanka people-wise as well as um, scenery-wise it's so diverse like you have different cultures here you have the Hindus as well as the Buddhists, Christians and also the Muslims 
And this also applies for the scenery. You have like beautiful beaches, like this pristine white sand beaches with palm trees. You sometimes even have a small swing on it. So you can just enjoy your time on the beach. But then only like about a hundred kilometers further, you are in the mountains, which go up to two and a half thousand meters. And so peaceful. You have waterfalls anywhere, everywhere. And you have also tropical rainforests with all the like um, fauna diversity you can imagine. Like the, when the other day, two days ago, we were driving to Batikula and we saw three elephants just at the side of the road. And it just makes your day just moving through this country. It doesn't matter if it's on your foot on your feet or being in a vehicle. You don't have to go far to go from, you know, coastal to mountainous. That that must be really amazing thing to have at your doorstep. It is. And the funny thing is it's, sometimes it's only 100 kilometres where in Australia or for German standards probably would take you an hour. But here 100 kilometres sometimes take you four to five hours. And then actually because it's windy roads, it's traffic, um, People always stop at the side of the world to have a cup of tea or have just a snack. So traveling in a vehicle takes a very, very long time here and it's very tiring. And that's why I find it so refreshing actually just to run also long distances because I move maybe not at the pace as I would in a vehicle. But it's not that much slower. So it's actually a big advantage. That Yeah, but it's pretty hot there at the moment. <laughs> How many miles or kilometers can you run before it's just too exhausting? Um, it really depends. Like I normally always take a bladder with me because like I, I've had it once on a 20 kilometer run. I was so dehydrated. I was urinating blood. And so it's very, very hot and humid. And sometimes it's very yeah, tiring and not as much fun. But what I do sometimes when I want to go to from A to B, because I know people are so interested and generous and welcoming. I just run and I, I basically know for a fact that a tuk-tuk or a, a motorbike or someone will stop and just ask me if I need a ride. You clearly like the Sri Lankan people and they seem to like you as well. What is it about it? What do you yeah. find what do you find is the thing that makes the connection? I think the simplicity of things. Um normally because they don't see me as a normal tourist who has a pocket full of money. Um it's they're just interested why I live this lifestyle and it's it's not about materialistic things. It's not about money. It's just they want to offer me a tea to sit down with me and have a quick chat, even though language sometimes is a barrier. And I think that's the beauty of it, that even though we cannot communicate verbally um, in detail or perfectly, we still manage to find ways how to get along and how to communicate. We use our hands and feet and it's just, I just feel comfortable with the people. How good's the tea in Sri Lanka? You say you drink a lot of tea with them. How good is it? I actually don't because they put so much sugar in oh. They either have milk tea or plain tea, but like um, put, I don't know how many teaspoons of sugar they put in it. So I actually stay away from the tea most of the time and I, I prefer the coconuts by far. So I have a coconut at least one every day. And, but sometimes I, yeah, I have a cup of tea when I'm just like my sugar levels are down and I'm tired and I have a cup of tea, but otherwise it doesn't really taste like tea anymore. No, I don't have sugar in my tea. Can't you just say that though? No, no sugar? 
Um, most of the time, they would just prepare liters of tea. Like, for example, here in the college, we get twice, or we get four times tea tea a day, and they just like have this big um, barrel where they just pour the tea out, and it's pre-prepared. So, um, yeah, you can't. Sometimes you can ask when you go to a small restaurant or a small shop. You can ask for plain tea, and then it's like good tea. But otherwise, yeah, it's always full of sugar. How about next time you're running through a tea plantation, you just grab a couple of leaves and dry them off yourself and make your own tea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could. Um, I actually slept in a lot of tea plantations because normally in the morning the mist is just sitting um, in the tea and it's just so beautiful waking up. in the, Like you cannot see anything except fog and the green, lush green tea leaves. Is the, is the environment fairly pristine, the beaches and through to the mountains? The environment itself, yes, but littering is a big problem. Um, if you go through more populated areas and the beaches are full of litter and they don't really have the awareness of how to keep the nature as it's supposed to be. And like even in the college here, like it's sometimes it's very dirty and you can smell it. And then with the heat and humidity, it just doesn't take long until you can smell basically every every item of litter and yeah that's that's a sad part of it you mentioned the college um tell us about the work that you're doing in sri lanka because you're not just running and uh, eating coconuts you're actually doing something <laughs> um yes so my role is here basically to bring people from the various ethnic backgrounds together so what i do here at the college i teach normal physical ed- education lectures so this morning i just had a running class where i just taught them about the ren- different running techniques but my main role is like i organize um exchange programs between different um colleges and and that's not something you could have done you know like 10 a dozen years ago because that's the basis of that entire conflict right yeah, that's correct. So um, the civil war ended in 2009. Um, and since then, it's been relatively peaceful. But there, you can still feel there are a lot of prejudices and tensions between the different ethnic groups. But a lot of times it's because they have actually, the people have never interacted with other people from the different ethnic groups. And that's why I think such a exchange program is quite sensible. Just that to bring the people together and actually see they're basically the same people. It's just that they have different beliefs, but they some of them have the same interests. They actually eat most of the time the same food, and they, they are just pretty much the same. I think that's how you can just show the people. It doesn't matter what religion you have or what you believe in. It's just you can make friends with anyone. Ninad Sharma runs IDEX, a volunteer and travel abroad company where you can get amongst the culture by taking part in very ethical volunteer abroad programs, at the same time developing yourself and making new friends during travel. Sri Lanka is one of the program destinations and I caught up with Ninad at the WISTIC conference in Scotland to find out more. Well, our job is to help two sets of people. One is the young travellers, of course, and the other is the local people of the country. Uh, Sri Lanka, for example. And the way we do it is uh, we would prepare an opportunity, an opportunity to travel, wherein a young person would be well taken care of in terms of you know their food, their stay. Uh, they would be given organized opportunities or options to immerse in the local culture in the form of you know meeting families, 
interacting with students. And the core part of the program would be for them to engage in a meaningful way, in, a, in an impactful way, with local communities that need some degree of help. Now, what that means is that if you look at any of the countries that are still developing, Sri Lanka being in the, the point in case, uh, there are schools that could use an additional English teacher. Yep. There are women's groups that could use somebody to come in and tell them about how to use a PC. There are um, even monasteries which would benefit from learning English uh, from a, a real English speaker because many times there are no English t uh, teachers around. Um, there would be schools that would benefit from their walls being repaired or sports classes being run. Now, we, what we do is we take the local need and design it in a way that an, a person, a young person, um, can actually contribute to the need, even though they may not have the language skills or the work experience. So our job is to facilitate through our knowledge to help these young people participate in a program which is enjoyable for them and useful for community members. And when we were talking earlier, you said there's no shortage of projects that need work on. So we're talking about developing countries in the Asian region all over. Yes. You know, you look at schools, you look at daycare, you look at health, you look at women issues, you look at, um, you know, rights or facilities for the differently abled, you look at um, orphanages, you look at uh, facilities required for, you know, um, the elderly. There is a need everywhere. There is a need. There is an, I wouldn't say necessarily there is an acute need, uh, because very often, if you look at the disadvantaged in the mainstream media, we get shown, you know, heart-wrenching pictures of, you know, starving people in Africa or filthy slums in, in Asia. And that is, that is definitely there. There's no doubt about that. But there, is, there are even sections of the society which are much easier to access, which are much easier to go to and still make a contribution, which is as valid as any other. But, of course, you're aware that this area has become a little bit tricky, mm -hmm. uh, that you've got to make sure that you're not actually taking a job from somebody else, that you are contributing in a meaningful way. So how do you manage that? Well, I think um, the, the fear, if I may say, of taking jobs away uh, is unfounded. If you look at, if I give you an example of my home country, um, India, um, if a, a, a well-run school would have an English teacher that wouldn't be really be able to speak a couple, more than a couple of lines of English. All right? So we're not really replacing any jobs. I mean, there is no way that uh, jobs are going to get replaced by a few thousand volunteers that we come in. What, what happens is, uh, is, is more subtle. It's, it's, as I said earlier, infusion of energy, bringing in new ideas, and even... Uh, the international volunteers uh, who may not believe what I'm saying sometimes, but they act as role models. You know, they, they act as people who are getting places, who are doing things. Now, uh, when we first met, you also told me the very interesting story of how you got into this business. Can you share? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as a, as a young college graduate back in 98, um, 
I didn't want to join any mainstream, you know, the so-called uh, professional lines and wanted to explore what I wanted to do. Uh, and so I joined my mother's NGO. My mother was working at a UNICEF-funded project at that time, and she was running a small NGO for women empowerment in the northwest of uh, northwestern state of Rajasthan in India. So I joined her, started to help her around because, you know, I was able to use computers that she was not able to. Uh, but there was just a slight problem. Despite all my work, she had no money to pay, pay, pay any salary to me, not enough even to, to put petrol in my scooter. So I had to do something. I, although I loved the work, it was very interesting. I got to meet a lot of people. And so I started a travel company wherein um, uh, I started organizing group tours for German and Danish um, schools and, and travelers, really. And it was great. We, we did well. Quite possibly because we were able to think outside of the normal tourism industry. So it was not just about hotels and museums. It was we could do a lot more. But overall, it was dissatisfactory because people would come to India, go to hotels and buildings, old, beautiful old buildings. But they will not really get to see much of the country, the real country, the, the daily lives and struggles and and sources of joy for the for the Indian people. And so it was it was making an income, but it was not very satisfactory at a personal level. And then um, purely by, you know, cosmic karma, um, <laughs> uh, eight young people from Denmark asked us if we could organize something for them at a project. And so we had them come to a, a women's project in the middle of the desert, really. I mean, the northwest of India is a, is a desert state, a desert region. And uh, it was a it was an okay school that was being run by UNICEF. So imagine there is this desert community, and uh, it's uh, there is this ground which has about twenty thirty houses uh, in a circular formation with a school in the middle. And this was a community of nomadic blacksmiths. So it was the first ever attempt to settle down these nomadic communities so that you know they can get an address and have some running water and education for their kids. And by traditional standards, it was going well. So we had about 30% of the kids of the community attending school. Now that is already an achievement for people who for over 400 years had never settled down to at one place. But when we had these young eight young people, um, you know, within a month that they were spending there, the, the attendance went over 80%. You know, the kids started to show up, and their cousins started to show up. Their parents started to show up at the school because just there was just so much going on. And with, you know, millions upon millions of people in, in India, you know, attention yeah. is sometimes hard to find. So we had the local media coming there. We had the local government coming in and providing funds to refurbish the school. And to us, it was like magic because eight young people one project one month and the whole thing just got turned around and so we had our sort of a eureka moment uh, we said hmm this looks interesting we have something that is travel it helps people it creates energy brings attention and it can be done with people who have had no prior experience of teaching nomadic blacksmiths kids in the desert <laughs> of india you know that sounded pretty amazing yeah yeah. And of course, I mean, that was our first experience, so we didn't quite know how to do it in the best possible manner. But over the years, we've improved it. And so now we can have a first time, um, uh, let's say a British young person, uh, come over to Sri Lanka and contribute to the lives of women there. We think it's a pretty cool thing to do. Oh.
Thank you, Ninad. Other destinations include India, Nepal, Vietnam and Thailand. There will be a link to the website in show notes. Phil, what's your travel news? Uh, Thailand's Maya Beach, the one where they filmed the beach, you know that one? Yep. It's going to remain closed indefinitely. Thai authorities initially said they'd close it for a few months to allow the coral a respite from the hordes of tourists, but now they say it's closed for good. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, why? Why? But, oh, well, it's been absolutely trash. Yeah, I know that, but are they for good, like but forever? Indefinitely, they right. say. So, okay. you know, how, well, how coral, takes. coral grows very slowly. So when that comes back, I imagine. Also in Thailand, you can now be fined for feeding the pigeons. I, look, this sounds like another one of those draconian military junters on a rampage laws, but I actually think this is a good idea because scam artists uh, prey on tourists at temples and public squares around um, Bangkok especially, selling them overpriced Birdseed. Yeah, I so told you I got done in Greece. Didn't oh, I? that's right. Yeah. So they're cranking that. They also say it's going to reduce the risk of spreading bird flu, flying rats, and all that sort of stuff. Okay, testing out my pronunciation again. Are we ready? The Japanese, <laughs> the Japanese, uh, what is it? The Japanese belief in omotenashi which means to wholeheartedly look after guests. Well, that's wearing a bit thin with the three main hotspots of Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto. Drowning in tourists. Oh, everyone's going to Japan. 30 million visitors are expected in Japan by the end of this year. And locals say they're sick of the overcrowding and the bad behaviour of some of them. Come on, people, be nice. Kim, what started in late September? Oh, not sure you tell me. Oktoberfest. <laughs> Getting in early. Oh, look, it used to be in October years and years ago, but they started a couple of weeks early now because the weather is better. It's just uh, wrapped up. Uh, without any major incident, thankfully. A few hangovers, I'm sure. But if you miss this year's drinking festival in Munich, now's the perfect time to plan and book for next year. Uh, speaking of uh, heavily visited places, the world's most visited cities in 2018 have been named. I know right. the year's still going, but, you know, the northern summer's over. Uh, topping the list with 20 million visitors is Bangkok. Ooh. Uh, London, Paris, Dubai is next. Do you know, I saw a Facebook post or an Instagram post on um, graffiti, street graffiti in Dubai. It's awesome artwork. Oh, is that right? But you would never think of it. The last thing you would think is that you'd be allowed to desecrate the buildings. Yeah. No, in, it's pretty heavily regulated place. Yeah, but beautiful street art. I've, I, I've, had, I've been in Dubai for about a week. I rather liked it. It's yeah. quite good. I wasn't there when it was stinking hot, but I liked it. <laughs> uh, what else is on there on this list that gets me? We're coming down the list a bit, a little bit. Uh, Antalya in Turkey, nine million visitors. Um, where else have we got? Pattaya, Osaka, and at the bottom of that list is Bali with eight point three million visitors. Mecca, that stands out, nine point one eight million. Oh well, that's because of the hard. Does that wrap up your travel news? That's my news. Awesome. Well, here's some news. Our Footprints Network, funded by micro donations, has raised the amount needed for the Women's Economic Empowerment Program in Sri Lanka. It's a focus on vocational training. Uh, the project's goal is to improve the economic well-being of young Sri Lankan women uh, and girls through decent employment and sustainable livelihoods. We have the project coordinator, Raj Kumar, on the line to firstly find out what is meant by decent employment. Uh, in the sense, you know, uh, we, they have to have a certain uh, income and also, you know, 
uh, in the in the, uh, the employer has to provide all the facilities, you know, good terms and conditions for them, uh, and also career prospects and career path for for the for the employees as well. We are also doing another program like you know self employment when they complete their uh, when they complete their vocational training programs. We can also we also support them to you know ha, uh, set up a self employment. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we are doing these projects. You know, I mean, unfortunately, uh, in the in the remote areas of Sri Lanka, where uh, you know. Uh, from from self employment also it's a kind of if they start up an enterprise small enterprise it's very difficult for for them to get a, a, a big income from those uh, small businesses but uh, we are also trying to promote uh, the, the the graduated young people to go to other districts where they can get more income or more uh, better employment but unfortunately the girls from those districts because of the cultural barriers uh, they are kind of unable to go to other districts where the population is uh, more and also it's a, a better city you know the township is much better but because of the cultural barriers they are unwilling to go to the different districts. So what does it mean for your project to have the involvement uh, through the Footprints program? What does that mean to you? Uh, we want to ensure girls and boys going into vocational uh, training programs, especially in the hospitality industry, construction industry, ICT and the automobile industry. Uh, and also we want to ensure girls are going into non-traditional vocational training programs. You know, generally girls are into like beauty culture, ICT, and then few other vocational training programs. So we are kind of, we are trying to have <coughs> um, um, uh, gender sensitive career guidance training program to provide all the information about, uh, you know, the vocational training programs and the and the institutes uh, that conduct different types of vocational training programs uh, by the government and also by the private institutes. So the girls and boys they have adequate equal information, and then uh, they can choose whatever the vocational training program they want to have it. Uh, but the hospitality industry and also in the construction industry we have a huge shortage of labour. In fact, a couple of days ago, I attended a conference in Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, they are trying to bring foreign workers from China, India, Bangladesh, and Nepal to fill the vacancies in Sri Lanka in the hospitality and construction industry. So we are trying to train young girls and boys, especially girls in, into the hospitality industry. Uh, but we really face lots of challenges, but uh, through proper career guidance training program targeting community members, religious leaders, teachers, principals, parents. And then we are kind of trying to get more and more young girls into hospitality industry. So still a few challenges there, but so thrilled the Footprints Network was able to help out and obviously can't be done without your micro donations. So a huge thanks. And that's right. And we've got over $4 million we've raised now from uh, everybody who's donated. So, yeah. Round thank of applause. You. Yeah, definitely. Well done. All right. Phil, this man is the official Guinness World Record holder for being the youngest person to visit all 196 sovereign nations in the world. It's not only all he's done, but I reckon we'll kick off with that. It's, <laughs> it's not, not a bad, bad effort to start off with. James, welcome. Hey, guys. How's it going? Can I ask the first question? How did you settle on 196? Because I thought it was 198. <laughs> well, do you know what? 
I'm still not sure myself. <laughs> no, nobody it's, is. Uh, it, it's something that uh, that's kind of up for debate, and uh, there's 195 sovereign countries, and then plus other regions, territories, and I guess this is where the conversation gets all political uh, about Taiwan and Hong Kong. I think I saw something a few years ago where um, one big company said they're in 220 something countries. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it depends. It depends what you want to class it as. Um, I guess some people class, you know, like reunion, for example, in the Indian Ocean. 8,000 kilometers from France. And uh, and is that still France? Is it not? Tahiti is even worse. So, yeah, I guess people kind of class it as, as many different things. Well, did you go to Reunion? Uh, I did actually go to Reunion, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it does feel like a mini little tropical France. I'm interested in the application process because I've tried to break a few world records before. <laughs> Drinking doesn't count. No, Kira. it wasn't, James. Don't believe him. Was it, was it a tequila train? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I think I have broken the world record for that. No, it was the most most bras strung together across this particular bridge. And then, really? there, then there was another one, like, sticking uh, chocolates in my mouth. But the issue is... <laughs> can, I, can I just point out, this well, is I... not... Can I just point out, this is not random, strange behaviour. Kim used to host an FM radio breakfast program. So, exactly. you know, all those hijinks that people get up to. She is that mad. What kind of, uh, but... what kind of chocolates? That's, that's the first um, thing that I want to ask. What kind of... Ferrero Rocher's, James. <laughs> <laughs> I, for some reason, I knew you were going to say that for some reason because I, everyone... That it's such a difficult chocolate to eat. <laughs> it is. You try shoving seven or nine of those in your mouth. It's not good. They've got all sharp edges on <laughs> I know, everything. I know. So I know that the application process is is rigorous. It's super strict. In fact, yeah. I, w- I was under the understanding that when you're cracking a record, you actually have to have an official from Guinness there to uh, make, and make sure that um, you're not cheating and you're doing all the right things. So how did you go about it visiting 196 countries? Oh, gosh, it, uh, it was not easy. Um, and obviously due to kind of like the, the kind of whole global nature of, uh, of going everywhere, it was, uh, it was something that took a lot of evidence. And initially I kind of thought, hey, you know, a, a passport's an official document um, that should kind of like the visas and the stamps would, would hopefully suffice and be enough. But, you know, as everyone knows, Guinness do things very properly and then probably then some beyond that. So it actually took probably over a year to actually get it um, kind of validated and confirmed, just like the, the, the piles of evidence that uh, that we have for them, you know, witnesses in every country and, uh, and you know, photos that, uh, that were proved in every country and tickets and travel plans and, uh, and visas, obviously, as well, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, a log of everything um, that, that had to be fully kind of verified by them. So it, it took a long time. I... I, I feel I feel for the person that had to do that over at Guinness because it was uh, it was a lot of back and forth and a lot of evidence. Um, I think there was one occasion where, like, like for example, I've been to the Bahamas on a cruise, and um, and like when you go on a cruise, a lot of places in the in the Caribbean. I, I was not intending to go to every country or get a Guinness World Record at this point, and uh, and so I got off the boat and I was just you know enjoying myself as you do. I was like, hey, here's the Bahamas, and uh, and then it was only kind of when I turned around and thought you know what, I need to get the evidence, like, because the many different kind of tick boxes of evidence that you need, one of them is obviously the visas and the stamps. And so I actually got a flight from London to the Bahamas just to go back the same, like three hours later to <laughs> London again, just to get a stamp just for Guinness. That's um, insane. So that was, 
yeah, it was like 22 hours of flying with a three-hour stop over there just to get a stamp. Well, not only have you done that, but you've actually created, you're the founder and the CEO of one of the fastest-growing travel apps called Holiday Swap. It's active in over 100 countries, Phil. And, look, if winning a Guinness World Record isn't enough, he's also won... Uh, the best new app award. Oh, okay. So he's a high achiever, this chap of ours that we're chatting to. Uh, tell us about Holiday Swap. Um, yeah, so it's actually, I just recently checked um, with some of the guys and uh, and I was told, I was even shocked myself, we're told it's in 184 countries now, which is which is so, uh, I mean, it's, it's great for our kind of, uh, it, what we're trying to do. The app's almost been to as many countries as you. Almost. Yeah, almost. <laughs> All, almost, yeah. Um, but no, you know, thanks so much for the, for the kind words, but I genuinely don't look at it in terms of that's a personal achievement. Um, it's, I, I, we kind of feel at Holiday Swap that this is for everyone to make travel more accessible. Um, and I kept getting asked by a lot of people uh, around the world when I travel, um, particularly a younger demographic and millennials, they would say, hey, you know, how, how did you manage to travel so much? Um, and, uh, and kind of the common consensus was we'd love to travel more, but, uh, but we can't afford it. And, and that's kind of a long age running thing. You know, you've got the mix between the conundrum between the money and the time. And, uh, and the more money you make, the less time you have because you're working more. Um, so we wanted to kind of create something and a tool that would be able to take out as much of the cost of travel as we can. Um, unfortunately, uh, I didn't have uh, the money to go and buy a plane and start putting cheap plane tickets on. So we thought, look, you know, the, the second largest cost, or actually it's slightly the largest cost is, is accommodation, which is 28% of what people spend on travel. So we thought, look, you know, people, most of us are lucky enough to have a bed to sleep in at night. And, uh, and we thought with the sharing economy growing, why not, uh, why not use that to be able to, uh, to travel and have a bed to stay in around the world? I've, I've got a bed and it's available between X dates and it's a sharing sort of facilitator. Is that the way it works? Yeah, exactly. It, it could be a bed, it could be a, a room, it could be a villa, it could be a, a, a huge house, a small house, it could be absolutely anything. Before we get to the, to the reason why you're about to hit the media, the podcast is on Sri Lanka, obviously you've been. What was your experience? Shrank is awesome. It's, um, I know it was, it's obviously still hugely popular, but it was, I kept seeing it coming up everywhere at the start of this year. Um, you, you know, there always seems to be that destination each year that everyone focuses on. I think a couple of, two years ago, it was Bali. Last year, it was Iceland. And then at the start of this year, everyone was talking about Sri Lanka. Um, and rightly so, because it's, it's so, relatively, it's quite untouched, I think, still by tourism. Uh, more and more people are going there. Uh, but it's, it's a fantastic country. It's, the uh, the only thing that kind of for me was always a little more difficult in Sri Lanka was it, it's a bit trickier to kind of figure out your itinerary, um, but that's exciting in a way. There's not necessarily like a top kind of five or ten places to see. A lot of it I feel is like immersing yourself in in what Sri Lanka is, and a lot of the south coast is beautiful. I love Kandy and Gaul. Not the biggest fan of Colombo, but most people don't. Uh, most people fly through Colombo and kind of use it as a stopping point and get out. But the southern coast and Wellagama for if you like surfing, like Wellagama and the bay around there is, is beautiful. Uh, and, and then, yeah, you've got the, the, the complete contrast from the beaches in the south as you head kind of into the middle of the country. Sigiriya was, uh, was an was a incredibly beautiful spot. Uh, people talk about you know, Machu Picchu as one of the wonders and Sigiriya again, which is very much the thing that kind of makes Sri Lanka beautiful. And what it is, is that it's, it's on par. It's, it's, it's parallel with Machu Picchu. It's this completely flat jungle. And then in the middle, this huge rock comes out from, uh, from it. You can climb to the very top of it. And it's like a little fortress 
um, where uh, where the population used to live. You can see why it was it was a great little castle up there because you can see people coming from all around. But I think it's a really good time to kind of go now to Sri Lanka before everyone kind of discovers just just how awesome it is. I'm about to get a little jittery because I have in front of me inf- information, which I'm unsure about how much I am to share, but there's about to be a massive global press piece surrounding you. So I'm going to have to throw it to you so I don't ruin anything or say the wrong thing. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a few different bits coming out, which is, uh, which is super exciting. The, the main one is uh, an air miles giveaway, which was actually when I was on a flight to Sydney um i was trying to knock myself out for the flight so i'd had a few drinks and uh and and i didn't knock myself out unfortunately after these few drinks i had a genius idea which was just to basically give give away all of my air miles <laughs> and uh i landed in sydney and i was thinking what have i just done but it, it kind of comes around in a in a full circle to the whole thing as to you know what we do with with holiday swap and, and we want to inspire travel we want to make it more accessible we want to make it cheaper you know a few people turn around and said why on earth are you giving away your air miles and not using them and it's about enough to fly around the world three times so just seeing the response and the reaction from people uh who just got so excited thinking about putting themselves in the mindset of where they could go and, and, and what they could see was exactly kind of what i really wanted to uh, to achieve with that we're doing a bunch of other other exciting stuff as well particularly through holiday swap i'm giving away another pair of flights to someone anyone that kind of just lets me know through uh, through instagram james asketh travel um is uh, is by instagram and yeah just kind of hit me up wherever in comments or in uh, slide into the dms if you wish everything will be seen everything you need to know about james and holiday swap will be in the show notes i'm sure you've heard me say before at world nomads we don't just talk the talk we actually walk it and phil you can't help but be inspired to travel when you're editing writing posting filming or recording these awesome travel stories i know my wanderlust is increasing all the time well you're going to italy next year you're I am. off shortly on a little micro adventure to far north queensland yep this man, our social media savant Isaac, <laughs> recently recently went to Sri Lanka. Thanks for having me, or as they say in Sri Lanka, is tutti. Ah, oh, he's pulled oh, the language on us. Yeah. <laughs> how many phrases did you learn? I learned how to say th- all the important things. Um, yeah. Thank you, is tutti. Um, most you you get around with English, so sorry. Yeah. The things I like to learn are sorry, thank you. Yeah. 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 yeah, the polite bits. Yeah. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts on Colombo? Because uh, James, who was earlier in the podcast, wasn't a fan. I um, didn't expect to like Colombo as much as I did. From from what I've read, um, I only booked a night. Um, the city's chaotic, but there are little pockets of charm, and I wish we had more time to sort of dive into those little pockets. Like what? Like what? Have they charming? There's an iconic hotel called the Goldface Hotel. Yeah. Um, which is right next to the Goldface Green. Um, which is an interesting area because what happens in the evenings when the weather's a bit cooler is lots of young people come out, they fly their kites, they're all these little um, eateries, sort of food stall type things. Um, Beautiful. So, yeah, so there are little things like that in Colombo um, that are really interesting as a, as a traveller. This is like their Central Park, is it? This is like their Hampstead Heath to them. Yeah, know? Central Park. By the beach, you know, the sun going down. It's a tropical sort of, that sort of balmy tropical evening. Heaps of young people out. Um, lots of lovers. It's it's a popular spot for local lovers. And that's okay? Yeah, it's all good on the golf face green. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about the train ride then. That, so one night in Colombo, which you regret, 
which you regret, <laughs> can't speak, um, you would like to explore that a little further. So you took a train to, to Gaul. So from, so sorry, from Colombo, we took a train down to Gaul. Right. Okay. The, the iconic hotel in Colombo is called the Goalface Hotel. Yeah. Um, the train trip, um, I had a very different experience to um, my partner. The mother of your child. The mother of my child. I'll run through the experience for you guys. So we got to the train station. Um, there's not a lot of signage. Lots of people waiting for the train. Um, first attempt, train pulled into the station. We jumped on because we were keen to get a seat because, you know, we were traveling with my daughter who's four years old. Um, and just before the train leaves the station, I work out that we're on the wrong train. Oh. So grab bags, grab kid, hop off the train, wait for the next train, um, take two. What bit- was the sign that you were on the wrong train? I asked someone. Is this train going to Gaul? And he's like, no, this is not going to Gaul. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, and I was like, bet, because she was down the end of the carriage and it's like, hop off, this is not the train. Um, When the right train came came along, we were a bit slow, um, didn't get a seat. Um, So we, Beck sat on the floor with Ashley um, in in the doorway. Yeah. um, And I was standing next to um, our baggage because I was, Concerned for the safety of our bag of our baggage. Yep. Did I do that to you? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Travel safety expert Phil. You know, I was I was aware, I was alert, not alarmed. Yeah. Yeah, good man. <laughs> um, so Beck had um, an amazing experience. Um, she watched the countryside go by. You see, you know, it's coastal. You pass little villages. There are people doing their thing, sort of daily life scenes of daily life in Sri Lanka, um, and she had this. Amazing moment, really. And she, she, you know, thought about life and where she wanted to be, sort of setting five-year goals. And I was there having a very different experience with the baggage. Going, <laughs> I've got my eye on you, mister. <laughs> and what about a four-year-old on a train? Um, I, I, she, was, she was sitting with Beck, um, little Ashley, and I, I like to think she had a good time too. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of your daughter, you said that there is a place that you would go to that you would – not take children to was this part of the safari or the the safari experience is not something I recommend with a small child. Can you explain? Um, that? I remember you saying that to us. But. Yeah, look, it's it's. I think the attraction for us was um, to bring Ashley to you know the the natural habitat of, of these animals and to see elephants in the wild and you know we thought that that was the attraction. Um, but the reality is, it's it's very very hot. These safaris go on for hours and hours. There is, you know, as as it should be, there is no guarantee that you will see anything. Yeah. Um, and so for a you know a four year old, yeah, it can be can be yeah. difficult. We 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 saw families sort of getting off the trucks and kids crying and you know parents about to strangle each other and you know because <laughs> dad wanted to see a rare sort of cheetah or leopard or whatever. Rethink the the safari thing if you have little kids. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, but Sri Lanka's safari, I had never put those two yeah. together, but so, clearly. Sri Lanka, if I'm correct, if if I'm wrong, you can edit this out. Has, <laughs> no, no, we leave that. Has, we leave that stuff in, mate. Has the I think is home to the world's biggest mass migration of elephants okay. that all sort of gather at this watering hole at wat, watering hole at this time of year, and it's it's a magnificent sight. I don't care if you're wrong. Sounds great. <laughs> and Felix earlier in the episode too spoke about um, Phil when he was 
running or, or uh, driving with someone, just wild elephants on the side of the road. Yes, we saw a bit of that. So that's, that's the other thing I wanted to say. It, for Ashley, we could be driving down the road somewhere and an elephant just sort of rocks up to the side of the car. And that's quite different to being in a bumpy Jeep for four hours to see the same thing. Okay, the migration is called the gathering. The gathering. Happened for centuries. Hundreds of elephants descend on the shores of an ancient reservoir in Sri Lanka's north central district. And I'm not going to pronounce that national park. No, well, nor am I going to pronounce this festival okay. <laughs> that um, that you went to, which is a, a great elephant segue. You said it was pretty spectacular, but you had some concerns for the elephants. Yeah, look, visu- visually, it's um, unlike anything I've ever experienced. What, um, what's the name of it? It's called the Asala Parahera. My apologies if I've said that wrong. Mm, probably better than film. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Did you want to have a crack at that? No, nah, nah, gone. Um, and it's a, it's a massive parade with traditional musicians and dancers, and you have these elephants in these um, amazing bejeweled costumes. Um, but yeah, it's a, a bit difficult to see those elephants. Some of them um, didn't look entirely comfortable with the noise and the and the, the loud music and, and the crowds around them. So that for me was a little bit a bit difficult to process. Yeah. Um, also a bit difficult to explain when you're traveling with you know a child why that's okay and when yeah, it's not okay. okay. You wrapped up your trip, family trip, uh, Nagombo. Nagombo was an um, interesting place for us. Um, it had a, a dark vibe, a dark energy, and I, I think it's um, to do with the fact that it has been known for child prostitution. That and the fact that there is a lot of Catholic imagery in the town kind of gave it a, a David Lynch sort of dark feel. The Catholic imagery that you're speaking of is a hangover from the um, Portuguese yeah, so sort of remnants from, um, I guess, early Portuguese settlers um, came to this. It's a little fishing town yep. by the coast. And you're saying it's not only is it known for child prostitution, but they actually feel have signs. Seriously? Yeah. What, warning of it? Yeah, in some places, um, hotels have signs um, saying that they, they don't encourage and they don't support that sort of activity and will call it, call it out. Yeah. So what would you say to families that want to travel to Sri Lanka? From my personal experience, there are very few experiences in life that have been enhanced by the addition of a four-year-old. Sri Lanka. (laughs) (laughs) Sri Lanka was amazing. So it's a family-friendly country apart from this area. Yes. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode featuring Sri Lanka. But the answer to your quiz question. The native plant that has created trade with Sri Lanka for centuries, dating back to about 2000 BC when this product was imported into Egypt. I'm talking about cinnamon. Oh! It's native to Sri Lanka. And, you know, so, of course, that whole spice trade and everything, which, I mean, went on during Egyptian times, during medieval times, um, the Europeans had no idea where it came from because the people who traded it kept the destination secret Yeah, because they wanted to monopolise the trade. So they made up all sorts of fantastic stories about it came from the nests of birds which flew to some strange island and collected it and things like that. So it was a mystery for centuries. But, of course, it was the impetus for, as far as Western civilization goes, for all that sort of, you know, exploration uh, throughout Southeast Asia and the Dutch East Indies. Oh, cool. I thought you were going to say marijuana. (laughs) 
because that's been around. You for... can sprinkle that on your feed as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, download the World Nomads podcast from iTunes or the Google Podcast app, and you can contact us by emailing podcast.com. What is next, Phil? Uh, we are featuring another amazing nomad, but this time it's a couple who swapped living in an RV for sailing the world in a catamaran. Please take me with you. Yeah, see you then. Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.